seventh series of Doctor Who was make or break time for the show. The ratings had dipped to 3.5 million viewers, and after six successful years and two actors in the title role, the series was undergoing its first dip in popularity. With Patrick Troughton announcing his departure from the lead role of the Doctor, citing the back-breaking 10-month shooting schedule, the BBC were looking to pension off the venerable Time Lord and replace him with something new. Ironically, that something new would prove to be Doctor Who. See, the BBC had been casting around for a new science fiction-based show that they could use to take over the Saturday evening schedule popularised by Doctor Who. A show that appealed to both children and adults and led from the sports of the early afternoon schedules into the more adult entertainment fur of the evening. Two options were put forth. One, to adapt Jules Verne. Or, two, to revive the venerable science fiction series from the 1950s, Quatermass. However, neither found particular favour. Either rights issues as with Jules Verne, or the show simply not being ready to go. And with literally nothing else in the can, the BBC ordered a stay of execution for the good Doctor. There would, however, have to be changes. The ginormous ten-part story that closed Troughton's run, which may have tested the patience of the audience, was not to be the norm going forth. And, for budgetary reasons, there would have to be other alterations as well. Producers Derek Sherwin and Peter Bryant were tasked with reviving the series, and they gave the show what was, at the time, its biggest overhaul, revamping the series' premise from top to tail. First of all, fed up with what Sherwin called the Naff Space Jellies costumes, Sherwin decided to exile the Doctor to Earth in the 20th century taking his inspiration from two earlier Who serials, The Web of Fear and The Invasion. These stories had seen the Doctor work with UNIT, the United Nations Intelligence Task Force, to battle threats to contemporary Earth from space and beyond, and were used as trial pilots for the new premise. Led by Brigadier Lethbridge Stewart, played by Nicholas Courtney, the Doctor had helped UNIT prevent an attack by the Great Intelligence set in the London Underground and an invasion of the Cybermen. Troughton's run concluded with the Doctor finally placed on trial by his own race, the Time Lords, and, utilising Sherwin's new idea, he was condemned to 20th century Earth. Under Sherwin's new premise, the Time Lords would remove the TARDIS's ability to travel in time and space, trapping the Doctor on Earth at, very coincidentally, a time period of great upheaval. Over the past few years, the Earth had made its presence known to alien intelligences, largely thanks to the Doctor, and this would lead to more stories where the bad guys came to us rather than the Doctor running into them. It could be considered more irony that as Quatermass was being considered to replace Doctor Who, Doctor Who was being made more like Quatermass. Cosmetically, the series would undergo a makeover. There would not be 44 episodes this year, rather only 25, to combat the burnout Trotton had undergone. The savings in money would be applied to the filming, which would now be in colour. 
All these cost-cutting suggestions, combined with a lack of anything else ready to move into production, the BBC decided that who would move forward for at least one more series. The producers set about casting an actor to play the role. Ron Moody was an early consideration, although John Pertwee was also in the mix. However, Pertwee was seen as a comedy actor, and not really suitable for what was seen as a serious, dramatic role. The timing, however, was serendipitous. Pertwee was looking to diversify, and move away from the comedic, silly voices he was known for in his radio comedy shows, and to demonstrate a different side to his talents. On June 17, 1969, just after Troughton was wrapping up filming, Pertwee was announced as the new Doctor Who. As with all actors, to portray the role, a lot of thought was given to the costume. Pertwee adopted a more swashbuckling look, with a cape, dinner suit and, initially, a fedora. The fedora was quickly lost, but Pertwee would become more outlandish as he went along, adopting frilly shirts and cuffs and extravagant velvet jackets, evoking the look of rival ITC action hero Jason King. For this initial story, though, he was a little more sedate. With Pertwee cast and terms agreed, the producers cast about for a new companion. Doctor Who was making an almost complete break from its past, and with a new Doctor, it was seen as a time for a new kind of companion. Carolyn John was cast as Dr Liz Shaw, a scientist and perhaps equal to the Doctor. She was also sarcastic and cynical, very much a prototype for the character of Dana Scully in The X-Files. Liz Shaw is a great addition to the show, proving a foil for the Brigadier and suffering none of the Doctor's withering put-downs. With the core cast in place, attention was turned to behind the scenes. Terence Dix was brought on board as script editor. With the series on borrowed time, Dix didn't think he'd be around for long, feeling that if the changes didn't work, the show would be axed. That he thought this brief association with Doctor Who would be a short-term thing was another great irony. Doctor Who, it seems, is powered on irony and Terence Dix would become one of the most prolific contributors to Doctor Who. His first job, though, was to employ a writer for the first serial. Dix employed Robert Holmes, while Sherwin employed Derek Martinus as the director. The serial aired on BBC One starting on the 3rd of January 1970, the first time Who hadn't launched a new series in the autumn. The summer and autumn schedules had been taken over by a new show, a little-seen science fiction television drama from America you may have heard of. Star Trek. Following on from the colour adventures of Captain Kirk and his crew, the audience was greeted by a new, more colourful title sequence, now featuring swirling colour reds and oranges, turning green and turquoise, before coalescing into the face of the new Doctor. The title, Spearhead from Space, changed at the last minute from Holmes's facsimile, zooms out at the audience and grabs us by the throat before a chilling opening set in outer space. Fifty meteorites fall to the Earth and are monitored by unit, but something seems off. Meteorites, as a rule, don't tend to fall in formation. The meteorites are all glowing balls and one is found by a local farmer. This opening evokes later movies such as Predator and The Thing. 
Lethbridge Stewart, alerted to the news, greets his new recruit, Liz Shaw, and takes her off to the local hospital, when he hears that a man has been found unconscious near where the meteorites fell. But that's not all. The body was lying next to an old police box, located, rather curiously, in the middle of a field. Holmes has started as he means to go on, setting up his story exceptionally well and building his mystery, and is allowing the Brigadier and Shaw to carry the story. This is largely because, as a regeneration story, the Doctor is conspicuous by his absence. Pertwee is quite low-key in this episode, and he leaves Courtney to carry the opening scenes and provide a link to the past for the viewers. In many ways, Pertwee's performance would set the template for all regeneration stories that followed, although, for trivia fans, it was initially called Renewal. The term regeneration wasn't used until Pertwee left the role in 1974. But that's the future. We're dealing with the Doctor's present. In the past. It's all very confusing when talking about time. The Doctor is seen as confused still believing he's his previous incarnation and aghast at his appearance, suggesting he has no say in the regeneration process, something somewhat contradicted much later when it suggested the Twelfth Doctor subconsciously chose his new face. Like the Tenth Doctor, Pertwee spends a lot of time in bed, only appearing properly nearly 15 minutes into the 25-minute episode. When he does regain some measure of consciousness, the Brigadier is staggered to be recognised by a man he's never met. These scenes work exceptionally well. The audience is being given a completely new paradigm for the show, and giving a large chunk of the running time to Unit and Lethbridge Stewart allows at least one familiar face to ease the audience in and allow for a backdrop of familiarity. Compare this to the 11th or 13th Doctor's debut stories, which really were a departure from all that had gone before. With the Doctor incapacitated, it's up to Liz Shaw to investigate. In this clip, she's essentially performing the same role the Doctor would come to occupy. Am I interrupting? Yes. Getting on all right? Fine. Just fine. Sorry about the makeshift conditions here, but we had to set this lab up for you in rather a hurry. Fine. Fine. Found out what it's made of? No, but it isn't a meteorite. You've established that much? Meteorites are the debris from comets. This has been manufactured. And it comes from space? There are some faint traces of heat fusion. That's possible. Still sceptical? Of course. I deal with facts, not science fiction ideas. Miss Shaw, I'm not a fool. I don't chase shadows. What you don't understand is that there might, there is a remote possibility that outside your cosy little world, other things could exist. No need to get touchy. Well, sometimes you can be very aggravating. Me? What about you? You really believe in a man who's helped to save the world twice? With the power to transform his physical appearance? I'm not sure yet. It may not be the same man. An alien who travels through time and space in a police box? As you could clearly hear in that clip, Shaw's intelligence and scepticism are well played by John. But sadly, the former character trait would be her downfall. We can't have a companion be as smart as the Doctor. 
The latter ten minutes of the first episode is turned over at this point to establishing Pertwee as the Doctor, and he locates his TARDIS key, escapes hospital, but is shot. This is a really abrupt cliffhanger, but shows the importance the Doctor places upon returning to the TARDIS post-regeneration, something seen and mentioned in numerous regeneration stories. In part two, the cliffhanger is resolved quickly, with the Doctor suffering a minor scratch, but re-hospitalised as he's still suffering post-regeneration trauma. As Lethbridge-Stewart continues investigations without the Doctor, Holmes takes the story in a different direction, focusing on a toy-making company that should be making new plastic dolls for kids, but seems to have branched out into making dummies for shop windows. The co-designer of the new doll, Ransom, played by Derek Smee, isn't happy he's been cut out of the development process of his new children's toy, and his partner is scheduled to take all the credit. Whether this is Robert Holmes commenting on work for hire, or just a byproduct of that, well, your guess is as good as mine. Ransom discovers the plastic factory has been taken over by a man called Channing, played by Hugh Burden, and he's working for deadly animated mannequins called Autons, desperate to recover their meteorites. The Autons have proven to be one of the more indelible images in Doctor Who history, with stories of 70s kids being terrified of the impassive-faced mannequins, some even refusing to walk past storefronts with clothing dolls in the window for fear they'd come alive and stalk them. The Autons are one of the scurriest bad guys in Who history. With their lumbering walk, boiler suit and plastic impassive face, they evoke Halloween's Michael Myers, despite predating him by nearly seven years. So effective were they, Russell T. Davis employed them to similar effect when he revived the show in 2005. Robert Holmes also structures his scripts very well. Whilst this is, undeniably, a 100-minute story that could easily be stitched together to make a feature film, each episode has its own feel and approach within the overall text. A regular audience member could drop in and not feel that they've missed anything. The Doctor, meantime, has recovered and sets about locating some clothes so he can leave the hospital in a more inconspicuous way this time. Interestingly, Pertwee becomes the first Doctor to have a nude scene when he decides to take a shower. And we also learn that he has a tattoo and, curiously, tan lines. The tattoo and tan lines are obviously Pertwee's, a remnant of his Navy days. But it does make me wonder if the 13th Doctor still has a tattoo. If we'd got a shower scene with Jodie Whittaker, maybe we'd have found out. The Doctor quickly locates the Brigadier and his TARDIS. Ah, there you are, my dear fellow. I expect you're wondering how I found you here. Yes. Fortunately, I had this with me, you see. It homes on the TARDIS. Oh, there she is. How nice of you to look after her for me. Do you happen to have got the key, by the way? I do, but it won't work. Aha! But it will for me. Not so fast. I have a lot of questions to ask you. My dear Brigadier, it's no earthly good asking me a lot of questions. I've lost my memory, you see. How do I know that you're not an imposter? Ah, but you don't. You don't. Only I know that. What do you think of my new face, by the way? Hmm? Oh. I wasn't too sure about it myself to begin with. And it sort of grows on you. It's flexible, you know. 
could be useful on the planet Delphon, where they communicate with their eyebrows. Well, that's strange. How on earth did I remember that? All right, all right. If I accept that you are the Doctor, there are still a lot of things... Oh, by the way, I'm... this is Miss Shaw. That's Delphon, but how do you do? <laughs> Delighted, Miss Shaw. Delighted. What are you a Doctor of, by the way? Practically everything, my dear. From what we can gather, you arrived last night in the middle of a shower of meteorites. Did I really? How terribly exciting. Well, objects from space, at any rate. Denied access to his TARDIS, as you just heard, the Doctor and Liz start to investigate together and discover that the Autons have been colonising planets for thousands of years and plan to do the same to Earth. A lot of 70s Doctor Who dealt with colonialism as the country came to grips with the good and bad of its past history. Spearhead also deals with other themes as well, such as the automation of the workplace and the callous disregard the people in charge have for jobs for the working classes. When did Doctor Who get political? With all the show set up, the conclusion is a bloodbath, fondly remembered by the audience for how brutal it was. The Autons stalk the city streets, murdering innocent civilians left and right with no cure for age or gender. A policeman on his bicycle, an elderly woman in the bus queue, or a man minding his own business simply walking down the road are all slaughtered. Total destruction. Much has been made of Pertwee's mugging in the final scenes, but so what? If you can't go over the top occasionally when you're playing the Doctor, when can you? The serial concludes with the Doctor agreeing to his new arrangement with Unit and establishes this very much as a repilot or reformatting of the show's basic premise. If they do decide to launch a second attack, I hope we can count on your help again. Listen, before we go into all that, Brigadier, I think we must discuss terms. Terms? Yes. After all, you do want to take advantage of my services again, don't you? I think you'll find the salary is quite adequate. Money? My dear chap, I don't want money. I've got no use for the stuff. Then what do you want? Well, facilities to repair the TARDIS, laboratory, equipment, help from Miss Shaw here. Very well. Anything you need. Within reason, of course. Oh, by the way, I've just realised. I don't even know your name. Uh, Smith. Dr. John Smith. The greatness of this series, and how well it all unfolds, belies a troubled production. Looking what was on screen, you'd think this all went without a hitch. You'd be wrong. With location filming completed, a strike by the Association of Broadcast Staff threatened the studio sessions, so producer Sherwin suggested filming the entire serial on location and on 16mm film, a decision that yields excellent results. On Blu-ray, Spearhead from Space looks wonderful. It looks as good as the Hammer Horror movies of the era and easily stands up against the best ITC shows that were being made concurrently. Removed from the drab BBC lighting and the studio sets, the episodes look like proper grown-up telly, not half-assed, cheap-looking filler thrown together at the end of the studio day. The regret is that no one looked at this and said, let's make them all like this. Even this 
wasn't the end of the problems. Peter Bryant was moved halfway through production to a new prestigious but now largely forgotten Sunday night drama serial Paul Temple, which was having serious production difficulties. He took Derek Sherwin with him. Stepping into the breach was producer Barry Letts, and he and Terence Dix would go on to reinvigorate Doctor Who. Spearhead from Space was a massive success. The show leapt from 3.3 million for The Last Troughton Story to 8.5 million over the four weeks this show ran. If there were any hashtag RIP Doctor Who or hashtag not my Doctor type fans around back then, they either kept quiet about the show's complete change in tone and style, or there was no social media to give them a voice. John Pertwee's nervousness about taking on the role is not at all evident on screen, and he portrays the most grown up and adult Doctor yet his childlike glee coming out in his love of gadgets and circumstance rather than catchphrases or sulking. The entirety of Pertwee's first series is considered one of the best of the run, boasting a maturity and an intensity rarely seen in the show before or since. The new format worked wonderfully. The seven-part Doctor Who and the Silurians featured the first appearance of the Sea Devils, monsters who would go on to become classics in their own right. The seven-part Inferno was a rare alternative Earth storyline and is considered one of the truly classic stories in the original run, being voted the best story in the Third Doctor's era by Doctor Who magazine. Only the seven-part The Ambassadors of Death is considered a lesser story, and even that is in comparison to the ones around it. I grew up with Tom Baker as the Doctor, and even though I considered myself a fan, there were a few eras of the shows about which I knew precious little. Pertwee was one of them. A friend, who you may have heard of, a guy called Shag Matthews, recommended I try some Pertwee, insisting that I'd like it given the types of science fiction I traditionally like. He was right. The Pertwee era has rapidly become a favourite. Despite my really only knowing him as Wurzel Gummidge, John Pertwee excels in the role. He's very different to other incarnations, but so is his era, so it works. Carolyn John sadly left the series after this first year and was replaced by Katie Manning as Joe Grant. Unit also added extra cast members like Captain Mike Yates, played by Richard Franklin, and Sergeant John Benton, played by John Levine. This excellent supporting cast gave Pertwee's era a family feel, and, for the first time, who was an ensemble piece with an excellent cast all working and playing well together. Over the five years he played the role, Pertwee's stories largely maintain a reasonable level of quality and represent a high watermark for the series, with intelligent plots, many of them torn from the headlines of the day. Pertwee, Letts and Dix arguably saved the show. Like Christopher Eccleston, Pertwee gave the show a gravitas and a power that saved it from cancellation, so that when Tom Baker took over, much like David Tennant, he inherited a successful show. That the series survives to this day is somewhat down to the work of these three men, and this episode is dedicated to the memory of all three. Without them, it's possible that Doctor Who would have faded into obscurity in 1969, rather than preparing for its 60th birthday in 2022. So, Third Doctor, whoever you are, tag, you're it. 
Imagine a podcast that celebrates the things we love. Why spend time being so angry and cynical about our fandoms? Join me, the Irredeemable Shag, for a show where we're just trying to be happy. The Once Upon a Geek Podcast. Our discussions focus on a variety of geeky subjects that we're passionate about. While the topics will be ever-changing, our focus will be on science fiction, comic books, what it means to be a geek in this world, and other nostalgia-fueled ideas. Life is short. Focus on the positive. Find your joy. The Once Upon a Geek Podcast, part of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Okay, you want to look at the email section, which is from It's Zach Empire, which I presume is just Zach again. Hello, Zach. Hello, Andy. I listened to your latest episode on Magnum P.I., and while I don't have much to say about it, I'm curious if you've ever seen the two-episode crossover between Magnum and Murder, She Wrote. I don't want to spoil it if you've not seen it, but it does something I'd never really seen in another TV crossover I thought you might find interesting. The episode order is that Magnum is first, then Murder, She Wrote. What is interesting is that the Magnum episode comes to its own conclusion. You don't have to watch them both to get the whole story. The Magnum episode ends with Magnum reading a book written by Jessica Fletcher, the main character of Murder, She Wrote. However, if you go on to watch the Murder, She Wrote episode directly after it, it basically ignores the last several minutes of Magnum and sets up its own hour-long episode and conclusion. It is strange to think of a show doing this. The reason behind it was there was no guarantee you would catch these episodes back-to-back on syndicated television, so it actually makes for an interesting viewing experience. That's because that ending where Magnum is reading Jessica Fletcher's novel is the syndicated ending. In the original, it ends with a cliffhanger to be picked up, as you say, on Murder, She Wrote. They did exactly the same when the show crosses over with Simon and Simon earlier on in the run. I think it's season three. In the Magnum episode, Morgan Fairchild is caught. In the original Erd version, Morgan Fairchild gets away And Simon and Simon follow her back to San Diego, where they pick up the story and Higgins makes an appearance. So it was, they filmed two endings for those crossover shows for that exact reason, for the reason that you say. So because in syndication, there was no guarantee that Magnum and Murder, She Wrote would her at the same time or on the same channel or whatever, really. There's, There's no guarantee they would be together anywhere. So that is why Magnum has a different ending if you see the syndicated version. I think the version on DVD is the syndicated print, but I'm not sure. Um, It'll be interesting to see which version they show when ITV forget, though, because they're the ones I'm currently watching because they're in glorious HD. Thank you, Zach, for your email. You're the only one that's emailed in. I can kind of understand why. There's been quite the gap between this episode and the last episode, largely because work got in the way. And it prevented me from being able to record anything. It's just been so busy. I haven't had time. So this is quite a quick one. Because I sat down. I'd just to watch Spirit from Space. Just for fun. Just for joy. Just for pleasure. Uh, and I ended up turning it into an episode. Because everything's grist for the mill. Um, I can't think of anything much that's happened. While I've been away. She-Hulk heard. Which was very enjoyable. My only complaint with She-Hulk. Was the amount of people calling it. The most meta show on television ever. To which I can only say, you people really didn't watch Moonlighting. All the monkeys, which knew they were in a television show in 1966. Or indeed, the Daffy Duck cartoon, where Daffy is in communication with his own animator. So that goes back to the 1940s. So this breaking of the fourth wall thing isn't new. 
Um, but the ending of She-Hulk is pretty much exactly the same as the ending of the season two Moonlighting episode. Camille were... Maddie and David stopped the chase halfway through because they've run out of time and money. And the props guy comes along and starts taking the toy guns off them and the set decorators come along and start dismantling the set. And Maddie and David explain to the guest stars, Whoopi Goldberg and Judd Nelson, how the story turned out before they all walk out of the set onto the back lot and get in their cars and drive home. Which is essentially the analogue version of what She-Hulk did, where she interfaced with the, the Disney Plus menu screen so you know i know everything old is new again but um let's not call it the most meta episode of television ever when we can ream off a couple of times that television and indeed cartoons have done that before research isn't difficult let's be honest okay that about wraps it up for this time i hope you enjoyed that little impromptu look at doctor who just in time for Jodie Whittaker to hand over the keys of the TARDIS to the next incumbent in the role. Who had quite familiar teeth. Hmm. Anyway, I'll be back next time. Hopefully everything's going to be okay, and I'll see you all real soon. Goodbye.